Glad you guys are here today. You guys must have all missed each other last week. I have never seen this room as full as it is right now. Uh, so welcome to everyone who may be new today. Uh, welcome for anyone who may have just been joining us who's been gone for a little bit. And, and, and welcome to all the guys who are here, it seems to like every week. There's a for those of you, we've got, a, we've got a decent amount of retired pastors in this room, which is a cool thing about this class. And for those of you who've ever worked in a church, you know there's kind of this nice rule of thumb that when it rains, 25% of people don't worship God anymore. And so, so the, the fact that it's raining and uh, we see all you guys show up today, I just want to say thank you. And I'm sure had we not canceled church last week, you would have all been here ready to worship God in the snow. So uh, we're glad, glad you're here. We're going to finish up First uh, Peter chapter 2 today, and last week, or the week before, uh, our last lesson, we talked about the role of government a whole lot. We discussed that, and one of the ma- major points we talked about was not necessarily how to articulate the role of government in the Bible. We talked about, you know, the main point of that lesson was how we glorify God through every institution, including the government, and how we as Christians work and play in that environment. And today we're going to be talking about another institution that was in place in the early church and in some way, shape, or form is in in place today. Uh, The servant-master relationship, that institution that's in place. So if you think about it, we did government uh, last lesson, uh, servant-master relationship this lesson, two very, very potentially oppressive institutions, and then next week we're going to cap off the oppressive theme with marriage. So uh, so, so we'll, we'll get all the way through these. As you guys know, Jeff Thompson is helping me teach this series, and, and uh, I was planning this out for him. I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this one. Why don't you come in and handle the marriage one? And he goes, he goes no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, he goes, my wife may listen to this. We're not going to do that. So I'll be up next week talking about marriage. And we're all going to make sure we don't tell my wife that we podcast this. So, so uh, uh, glad we're going to talk through servant-master relationship uh, today. And ironically, what I, or not ironically, but beautifully uh, with God's text, I, I think he gives us this text today talking about the relationship between a servant and a master, not to talk about the shackles of slavery, but to actually show us what true freedom looks like in Christ. And so our theme today really is about freedom. You know, God is God is more wise, smarter, more powerful, uh, more, more majestic than we ever really give him credit for. And he tends to turn the world upside down on us all the time. And, and, and because, I mean, for us, what the world upside or, or the world in a, from a normal basis, uh, that world that we're in that seems normal to us is a world that's been corrupted by sin. And so when God comes in and he's turning our world upside down, he's really taking us back to what he intended everything to be. We are part of his redemption story to make the world right. And so we're going to see that in this text today. He's going to talk about a servant and a master, and where the world is going to see bondage, in Christ we see freedom. Freedom is the major theme we're going to go through today. And just a quick aside, I... I, I um, uh, something's just been on my mind a lot is, you know, we've, we've all been slaves to something. Uh, I was listening to the uh, So We Speak podcast with a guy in this very room, Daryl, uh, um, our, our So We Speak podcast last week. And just what a great example that podcast was of, of an example of something that has enslaved us. 
Uh, all of us at some point in time have been enslaved by something. We've been controlled by something. It may be an addiction to drugs or alcohol. It may be a pornography. It, it may be materialism or greed or arrogance or pride, but something we've been addicted to. And you, if you've been down that road, which I know many of you have, and many of you may be struggling with right now, but if you've been down that road, you, you find that you don't have the power to set yourself free. You don't have it in you. And, and that doesn't make you weak. You don't have that power. That power to truly experience freedom is a power that only comes through Christ. Victory only comes through Christ. And I want to make sure everyone knows that right now. The power is not ours. The power is in Christ. And I want you to see that play out in this text today. Before I read the text, some of your translations may say slave. Some of them may say servant. And any time we teach the Bible, we need to remember a couple principles. And Jeff and I have both talked about this throughout the lessons is we always need to make sure we know who this text was written to and what the context of the original readers would have understood that. We need to be careful not to put our 21st century language or meaning into a context of when these original readers heard this. Uh, So when we hear the word slave, what do we all think about? What do we all think about whenever you hear slave? Whips, lashes, you think about ethnic slavery, right? We think about the slave trade, the horrific, horrific history in this country and in other countries of the slave trade. All of our minds are going to go there, right? And whenever you see the word slave in this, I do not want you to think about that. That is not the context of this. The slavery uh, mentioned in here is a very economic one. It's not a race-based, ethnic-based slavery. It's an economic arrangement uh, that has been made. Nothing at all to do with what we think of as slaves. And, and, And you would see a lot of people fall into this servant class uh, in biblical times. So you would have seen artisans, laborers, uh, even doctors, different physicians may have fallen in to this class based on how these economic arrangements worked. But there was a servant and a master relationship that would play out. And this is one of the beautiful things about Christ. Christ is the great unifier of all things. You know, neither slave nor Greek, Jew, Gentile, right? Christ is the only thing that can bring everyone together. Uh, I was uh, at a Chamber of Commerce meeting, oh, about a year ago, and the Chamber of Commerce was listening to all these presentations about what was going to happen in this city for MAPS 4. And this, this really, really attractive guy in a very nice suit gets up and he's making a presentation, and he goes, what is the great unifier that this city needs? What is the one thing that this city needs that will bring everybody together? And I'm raising my hand in the back, you know, you know I've got this answer. I, I know the answer to this. And he goes, you know what we need that will bring everybody together, the one thing? And everyone's on the edge of their seat waiting for it. And he goes, a soccer stadium, right? And, and a soccer stadium, as great as soccer may be, uh, my dad's in the back. Dad, I, I mention my dad a lot in my lessons. If you don't mind, raise your hand because everyone forgets who he is. That's my dad in the back. My dad's back. I grew up in Kentucky. You don't play soccer in Kentucky. So I've never once played soccer in my life. I remember talking to my dad about it. I was like, yeah, so we're, we'll play basketball. Uh, so, so I never played soccer. But it's not a great unifier. It's, it's, it's sports. The one unifier in this world is Christ. Because it doesn't matter what you've done, who you were. It doesn't matter how bad you were. It just doesn't matter. I mean, the greatest heroes we have in the Bible were the worst people we could ever imagine. 
I mean, Paul, Saul, before he was Paul, Saul stoned Christians, right? Killed Christians. Uh, we look, Peter himself, who the, the author of this text, denied Christ three times, right? So you just look at this. It does not matter. We all get to experience that grace and be unified and get to experience his freedom. So this would have been a very normal thing, though, this servant-master relationship for the people at the time. A large portion of the church would have been made up of this class. And think about it. it uh, Christianity is very attractive to people who feel like they need to be set free. Uh, and so a lot of people would have been in that class. And so this letter, when written, I want you to realize that, that a good percentage of the people reading this would have immediately applied the lesson we're about to read. Servants, though... Uh, it'd be very easy for them as if you're a servant uh, and you have a master and you accept Christ, it'd be very easy for them to start to look and act, or not look, but act a lot differently than the rest of the people in that same class. They have a Lord and Savior now who is Jesus Christ. There is an ethical behavior that they're adhering to now that is different than the past. And I want you to think about the, like a bad boss that you've had at some point in time in your life and how much control that bad boss had over your life. And just imagine one day that, that you walk into the office and that bad boss notices that there's something different about you. And then maybe even starts ridiculing you for that difference. Right? That's a lot of what these guys would have been experiencing. They've got, they may have some bad bosses uh, who are exerting undue influence on them. And as they start to try to live a life in, in the Christian way, there would have been some issues and some conflict that would have occurred. And so what this letter is going to give us is some guidance for these guys of how do you deal with that? Right? If you get a bad boss, do you need to smack him upside the head and say, my Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ, let me move on down the road? No, you're going to find that's not the guidance that we give. Right? But I want you to just realize, for us, we're going to take some application out of this, but there would have been, this would have been really, really useful and, and certainly some difficult guidance for a large portion of the early church at that point in time. Make sense? All right, I've set this text up enough. Let me go ahead and read it. So it's going to be chapter 2 of 1 Peter, uh, verses 18 through 25. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins to his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Beautiful text. Um, lots of run-on sentences in the Bible in the New Testament. Doesn't it seem like, just seems like they, they've got a lot of commas uh, in sentences. Especially Paul. Peter gets in that habit as well. But you look at this text, and there's a lot of commands given in this text. First command you see in there is, be subject to your masters. Does he say be subject to only the good masters? 
Oh, be subject to the good and the bad masters. If you remember back to the text we talked about last or last lesson, it ended with, you know, um, honor the emperor, fear God, love the brotherhood, you know, uh, honor everyone, right? So you kind of look at that, and I probably got that order backwards, but meant to be showing honor where honor was due, but fearing God, a, a fear that would lead to obedience and faith. Uh, in God, but we saw this same theme of honoring the emperor. He's saying here, be subject to them. You're within this institution. Be subject to them, both good and bad. He says, do it with all respect. Give the right level of respect to the people you're engaging with. And what I like about this, he also says this, he goes, be mindful of God in what you are doing. Be mindful of God in what you're doing. Think about how often we go through our lives, and, and it's very easy to just get caught up in whatever we are doing. But we are really called to be representatives of Christ at all times. No matter what we are doing, be mindful of God in the practice we are doing it in. And, and for us, I mean, that's anything we're up to. We must be mindful. Uh, you, there's this old adage about what does a Christian shoemaker look like, and I'm sure many of you guys have heard this. Uh, but what's a Christian shoemaker look like? Well, it's, it's a shoemaker who makes a good quality product and sells it for, the good, for a fair price, right? Being mindful of God that I'm going to be fair even in my trade. I want to make sure I'm doing a good job representing him, knowing that it's his purposes and his glory that I'm after no matter, no matter what I do. And the last command you see in this text is to follow in the steps of Christ. Follow in the steps of Christ. And if you really think about why we get these commands... Because when we are doing these things with God in mind, with his glory in mind, and when we suffer for it, it says that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Right? It's a gracious thing. He is pleased when we have to suffer for doing good. He's, he's pleased that we endure through that, being mindful of him uh, for his purposes. In fact, when you do th- those things... You're doing everything to the example that Christ has given you. God's never going to ask us to do anything that he has not already done, right? If, if we're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him, he's already done it to the point that he died on that cross, right? We're all called to follow the example of Christ. He's shown us the way, and sometimes that means we must suffer. He came and he, did the, he, he gave us the ultimate example by dying. And by doing that, he allowed us to live in his righteousness. To be free from the shackles of slavery of sin. To live in his righteousness. If, if we've been given that gift, let's follow his example so that we can, we can get to appreciate that gift. Right? We, can, we can get to experience the freedom that he offers in what has already been done for us. This is something that, if you really think about this, this is a difficult concept to really think through. That by following him, even into suffering even into the context of us being servants to another master, even as us being citizens in a government, by following him, that is where we will experience transcendent freedom. Absolutely transcendent freedom. And I want you to just talk about that a little bit before I explain it further. Talk at your tables for just a second. Does that actually sound like freedom to you? And if the answer is no, that's fine. Talk it out. But but following and being subject to institutions, whether it be government, whether it be your master, but following Christ into suffering, does that sound like freedom or not? Talk about that and we'll come back. Well, based on the discussion I'm hearing, I feel like I could just let Chris Bennett teach his course. Uh, It's uh, like if you want to come up and finish the lesson, I think you've got this. Uh, 
But you know, it, it's a for us. This is a difficult concept because for us, freedom is doing whatever we want, having no no authority, no control. Uh, it's completely on us to go and chart our own destiny. It's embedded in us as Americans, manifest destiny to go and live the American. I mean, it's just it's all of that is in our heads. And, and what I said at the very beginning, God flips this world upside down because what we actually think of as freedom in our culture, in our minds, that is another form of slavery. It's another form of slavery. We're going to be, we're going to be in somebody else's control, someone else's power, and I'm going to show you that here in a minute. Uh, freedom in Christ looks very different, but it is the only true freedom. If we actually follow him through suffering, being subject to the masters with respect so that when we suffer for it, uh, we do know that everything we're doing, we're being mindful of God so that God will be glorified. We're going to start to look more and more like Christ. The power of God is going to be at work at us in ways that it couldn't have been before. Continues to be more and more at work because we have surrendered to him. We've absolutely surrendered to him. And the ways of this world no longer constrain us because the power of what is fueling us is not of this world. The power is coming from God. That is freedom. When you realize that the power that we must depend upon comes from something other than yourself, that's a freedom that can transcend everything we know. It transcends politics. It'll transcend our government institution. It'll transcend our economics. It'll transcend our work. Whatever institution we're being subjected to, God's power can transcend that. And he grants us freedom within his power as we trust in him, as we trust in the faithfulness we have in God. There's this quote that I've got on your handout, uh, written by Peter Davids, a commentator, and I really like this quote. I want to read it to you, and I'm going to break down some of these examples we see in this quote, because what I want you to see is back in the time that this text was written, there was a few different groups who were emerging uh, that really got this wrong. And there's groups today that are really trying to be Christian or think they're Christian or at least saying that they're Christian and are getting this wrong. And I want you to see some examples of this to understand where it's easy for us to be led to uh, based on all the influences around us versus what the text is actually calling us to, what God's actually calling us to. So let me read this quote to you real quick. It says, Christians are called to freedom, but it's not the political freedom of the Palestinian zealots who recognize God alone as their Lord and King and therefore attack the Roman occupation troops and Jews who cooperated, nor that of the Stoics, who struggled for sovereign detachments of the pains and pleasures of life, nor the freedom of the antinomian, who flouts social and moral rules to gratify his or her own impulses, but the freedom of which Paul wrote so eloquently, and Peter does here, a freedom from sin, from the law and the world that release one not to enter not to independence but to the service of God to the service of God if you're a slave to something it has control over you and so i want you to look at the palestinian zealots really quick in this example these guys were, were, were people who does exactly what the text says. They recognized God alone as their king uh, back in the day, and they used that recognition of what they had to go do what they wanted to do. Right? What they wanted to do was to overthrow the Romans and just make sure they dealt harshly with anyone who stood in their way. And there's some pretty amazing stories of what some of these guys did. Uh, but 
they used the name of God to justify what they wanted to do. Now, when you do that, whenever you, you think that you're in that mentality, what are you a slave to? If you think, think that through just a little bit, what are you a slave to? What has control over you? What limits you if that's the mentality you have? Feeling, Feeling to a certain extent. I'll get to that one. That comes up a bit more in another one of these examples. Your ideology, limitations of your own wisdom of your ideology. When you're playing this game that these guys were playing, you're being controlled by your lack of power or by the strength of your opposition, right? That's why, I, I mean, just, I, I, I'm going to go off. I'm not going to go off on a tangent on this. So that's why part of the reason we see in politics right now is it, it seems like it, it can seem to us that no one's really trying to do work for the good. They're always, both groups are just trying to remain in power, Right. Whenever, whenever you are putting the, the, the recognition of your goals, your aims, your power ahead of everything else, it's very easy to just try to pursue power. And you're being limited by your own power or by the strength of the other side. It's hard for us to think that way, but that's actually what is enslaving us is that, that which is controlling. Modern day example of this, because this is very easy for us to fall into, for us to sit there and use the name of God to justify what we want to do under our own power, under our own coalition. This happens a lot. Christians who put their political agenda above their faith are doing this. Right? Christians who believe that, through, that using politics or, or politicians as their primary weapon to bring about the change they desire are doing this. They use God to represent their political views versus ensuring their politics are subservient to their faith. And, and, and this doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged in politics. I completely disagree with that statement as well. I think we ought to be, as Christians, in the public squares, as leaders in every institution, politics, academics, uh, medical fields, everything we can possibly be in, we ought to be leaders. But far too often it's very easy for us as Christians to go want to accomplish what we want to accomplish and use God's name as our justification versus trusting God and then being obedient no matter what situation he gets us into. This, I guarantee you guys, I had a conversation with one of you guys in this room this week about this topic. And I want you to think about this. When people make this mistake, how many people do you know that it really, really impacts negatively? Uh, whenever you use the name of God to go justify your own desires, and your desires are not perfect, they are not his ways, they are not his thoughts, we are not that good, right? When we do that... We end up jeopardizing our witness, and we jeopardize a lot of people's perceptions of who God is. We've got to be very careful not to fall into this trap, as tempting as it is, and especially as tempting as it's going to be during this election cycle. I want everyone to remember the dangers of using God's name to justify what we want to do. It needs to be the other way around. Does that make sense? Okay. Stoics. Now, we had a fun lesson on Stoicism uh, not too long ago, and I'm not going to repeat all of that, uh, but I really enjoyed uh, learning about the Stoics a bit more. And I, I, think if, I think if God wasn't real, I would be a Stoic. Uh, but God is real, so I'm not going to be a Stoic. But a Stoic, they, they, try to, they try to completely detach themselves 
from pains and pleasures in this world. They feel like the only way to freedom is something that is inward. That if they can control their reaction to the stimulus in this world, that nothing can gain power over them. And so the only way, if you track that logic, the only way that you can, you can go all the way down that road is to make yourself completely numb. Absolutely numb. So if somebody, if a loved one dies, or if something doesn't happen, or you don't get that promotion, whatever it may be, it doesn't affect you because you've numbed yourself, you've hardened your heart, honestly, that much. You've built up a callus. And this was a very real philosophy. A lot of the major Roman leaders and Greek leaders at the time were Stoics. A lot of our educational system was built on people who were Stoics. Uh, But modern day, today, we can fall into this trap. We might not call ourselves Stoics. But we'll start going down that road whenever we decide that we just need to disengage from this world. Right? And, and, and we're sitting there and say, we are, we are so impacted by the negativity, by the issues all around us, that we feel like the only thing we can do is just completely step back. Right? And when we do that, we become slave to the limitations we've given ourselves. If we step back and we've told ourselves we're going to step back, then are we going to be obedient if God's asking us to engage in something? It'd be very easy. The easy answer is to not be in the fight, but we're called to be in the fight. We're called to be in this world, just not of this world. But a lot of Christians right now are looking at everything they see and just say, the world's gone to hell. I'm out, right? And just, and just completely detaching from society. We're called to be in there, right? We're called to be in the fight, uh, that's not an option we have. Uh, if, if, we, if we detach, we're limiting, we're limiting what God can use us for in this world. The other example you see in this is the antinomians. And that's just a fun word to say, so I underlined it. Uh, but antinomians. So uh, Adam Clark, researcher well back in the day, um, here's a way he described what an antinomian actually is. He says, the gospel proclaims liberty from the ceremonial law. Liberty from the ceremonial laws. There's all those laws of Moses, right? Think about all the ceremonial law you have. A lot of what we have in the gospel, the new covenant with Christ, proclaims liberty from that ceremonial law. But it binds us still faster under the moral law, right? To be freed from the ceremonial law is the gospel liberty. To pretend that freedom from the moral, that you have freedom from moral law is antinomianism. So you think about that. Think about how easy that is to fall into, to go, oh, geez, Jesus has set us free from the law. And so I have been saved by grace through my faith, which you have, right? And nothing can take that away from you whatsoever. You have been saved by grace through your faith. If you're in here today and you have repented and you have put your faith in Christ, you are an adopted son of God, right? And that is incredible. The issue the antinomians have is they go, I have been saved by grace. Now let me go do whatever I want. Right? Absolutely whatever I want. And that is not a liberty that is given to us in the Bible. We are called to a life of obedience. An absolute life of obedience. I think if you just think about all the lessons we've been through in this last year, I hope that's very clear, uh, is that he's called us to a life of obedience. And sometimes we may be able to uh, really look and, and see that and, and maybe think that's stifling. But we see over and over again is a life of obedience grants us a freedom within the power of God that we didn't even know existed. Right, it's, just, it's just incredible. The modern-day example of this is the Christian who accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord. I just want you to think about that real quick. 
To be a Christian is to be saved by Christ and that he is our Lord each and every day. Each and every day we get up and we put our trust in him daily. Right? If we see him only as our Savior and not as our Lord, we fall into this trap that so many of us, it's so easy, and I do this myself at times, uh, do, that, that I've been saved, now let me go do whatever else I want to do. It's kind of like having that insurance policy in your back pocket. If you think about all three of these worldviews, we really talked about that. They're very different worldviews, uh, but they all had something very much in common. Uh, they're all me-centric, if you notice it. They're all me-centric. Uh, it's for my purposes. Uh, it's for my glory. Uh, it's for my own desires. It utilizes my methods of getting things done. It uses my power or the power granted to other men. It uses those powers to accomplish something. They're all very, very me-centric in their nature. But we have freedom to the service of God, freedom in being a slave to Christ, And when we do that, it shifts upside down. No longer is it me-centric, but it's God-centric. It's his purposes and on his timeline. Uh, It's for his his glory, for his desire, his methods, and we depend upon him for his power. Knowing that we don't have the power or the authority to do it on our own, we must depend on him. And we know that he is victorious. We've read the end of this story. right? We know that he will be victorious. And if our master can defeat death, right, There's nothing that he's asking us to do that cannot be done through his power. There's freedom in knowing you're on the winning team, right? All you have to do is be obedient to what he's asking us to do and utilize the power he gives us. So I think about this a lot, and and it seems to make sense, at least as I've studied the Bible, this this makes sense to me. What's more difficult for me to, to try to contemplate is how do you actually do this, right? How... How do you actually get up each day and be obedient and trust in him? How, how do you do it? Uh, if we agree that everything I just taught is actual truth, and let's just all assume that we agree for a second. I may have gotten something wrong, and you can email me after class and tell me what I got wrong, but let's just agree that I'm right for a second. How do you actually do it? Like, how? And uh, where, where, where does the power come from, the, the strength to obey? How do you do it? Because I think... At different stages of my spiritual journey, I would have thought that what I just explained was absolutely impossible for a sinner such as me, right? And so how do you actually do this? I read a book uh, last weekend, or weekend before last, sorry. Uh, in my notes, I read the book last weekend because I wrote this lesson last week. So uh, I read a book a couple weekends ago called The Hiding Place. And if anyone, has anyone read, anyone read The Hiding Place before? A decent amount of you. If you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Uh, this book was written by a lady uh, who was a Christian during uh, World War II, uh, living in, geez, Austria, I believe. Uh, is that right? Austria? Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Holland. She was living in Holland. Uh, and, and pretty much found herself in a position where she was having to help escaped Jewish people under persecution from the Nazis. And this lady was 53 years old, had never been married, was still living with her dad, uh, worked as a watchmaker, a watch repair uh, person every single day, had lived a very quiet, uneventful life her entire life. Never had any specialized training, wasn't outgoing, wasn't attractive, you know, didn't have any real money, didn't have any resources, you know, nothing like that. She lived this very quiet, humble existence. And then all of a sudden, 
she's thrown into this position where she is leading the largest underground ring transporting Jewish people to and from all over the, the region, uh, working in, in, in um, making sure that the different government spies were being engaged, working with resource officials, uh, working to make sure ration cards were provided, getting housing lined up, doing all these incredible things. She ends up uh, each day, not knowing she doesn't have the strength to do it on her own, depending upon God, she's making life or death decisions on a daily basis without her understanding of it. She's praying daily saying, God, you know the people I need to talk to to make these things happen. I'm trusting that you will do it. And she goes forward and she, she, she does it every single day. She, gets, she eventually gets arrested. And while she's in prison, she is beaten. She is starved to death. She, she is near death many different times. And the people who are trying to torture her and persecute her, she witnesses to. She tells them that she senses darkness in their life and she tells them the gospel. She explains. She hides the Bible on her body to where, she, to where no one could find it. She goes to these great lengths to smuggle Bibles into their prisons. She goes to a concentration camp and she leads ministry efforts every single day. Her and her sister get down on their knees at one point in time as they're in all these bunks. And the bunks are made of straw, and there's thousands of women in these areas, and they don't give them any bathrooms. And so the bunks have just had this horrific smell, and, and, and uh, the sanitation is horrible. There's disease everywhere. There's no ventilation. Fleas are all over them at all point in time. And her sister gets there, and they get down on their knees, and they pray, giving thanks to God in all situations, and they thank God for the fleas, not knowing why they needed to thank God for the fleas, but he said, give Give thanks in every situation. Give thanks for all things. And so they did it. And then a month later, they realize that they're able to minister to all of these women in these rooms throughout the day, preaching the gospel, bringing people to Christ. Why? Because the fleas were so bad, the guards wouldn't come into the rooms. Right? So you, you look at this, and I read this story, and it just captivated me. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how did she do these things? She had no education, no training, no power, no money, nothing. How did she do those things? She was exhibiting skills that did not exist within her capabilities. And God took care of her and blessed her along all the way, even though she suffered daily in ways that I can't imagine. Right? How did she have the strength to do it? And what hit me hardest is I really contemplated that the, throughout the entire story and then really a lot afterwards going, how did she have the strength to do it? I realized, one part of the book said this. Every morning, her father would get up at 8.10 in the morning, like clockwork. He was a watch repairman. So like clockwork, his fa- her father would get up at 8.10 in the morning. Her and her sister uh, both still lived in the home. And he would walk downstairs and prepare coffee and breakfast. And at 8.30, he would take the Bible off the shelf. He would open up the Bible, and he would read aloud to his daughters every morning. And they would discuss the Word of God. For 53 years, that word was imprinted into her heart. It was, if you think about it, for 53 years, it was like kindling that had been just piled up and piled up and piled up in a storehouse so that when God said the match needs to be lit, it explodes and he uses her in such a big way. 53 years of humble obedience to knowing that this is what I need to cherish above all things, not knowing how I'll ever use it, but knowing this is where my wisdom lies and where my power lies. 
And so when she got into those darkest moments, she knew the word of God on her heart. No one could take that from her. And light shined in every situation. When they took her Bible away from her, she could repeat the verses to the guards and share the gospel. So many people came to Christ because of what God did through her. And had she not woken up each day with that dedication, or her father's dedication, to share the word to his family, I don't think any of that would have been impossible. The, the, the tools that God gives us, he's saying, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are here, right? He gives it to us to learn. As, think about that. If, if we think we need to have the power to trust in him in ways that don't make sense to the world, we can't trust in him. We can't, know, we can't trust in someone we don't know, right? And, and the way he has given us to know him is the word of God and is the church, right? He's given us those methods. And so I want you to think about this. A lot of this lesson may seem almost impossible. And it is under our own power. We cannot do the things that God asks us to do, but he can because he has a power. Best thing we all need to make sure we do is, are we going to be men as, as leaders in our church, as leaders in our community, leaders in our family, are we going to be men who trust so much in God that we know we need to start every morning or end every night or, or hang out every day knowing that not only do we need to know the word, but we want to share it with everyone in our household uh, because life and death depends on it, and we never know how God will use that in the future. There's freedom that comes in trusting in that. This, the author of this text, the girl in the story, she did not have to worry about what was going to be holding her back. She didn't have to worry about whether or not she was going to die. She didn't have to worry about if she was going to have the right resources or the right knowledge or the right expertise. She had freedom in knowing that she could just depend upon God. And that is a freedom that only comes from God. Let me pray for us when we get out of here today. Father, I thank you uh, for these men and I thank you for this church. Uh, I, I thank you for every step of these men who have come here today for some reason. Uh, I, I thank you that we get to just cherish your word. Uh, we, we don't have to smuggle the Bible into a prison cell. Uh, we, we aren't dealing with physical persecution. We aren't dealing with social persecution for the most part at the moment. And I just thank you that, that in the midst of the peace that we get to experience right now, uh, that we get to engage in your word. But at the same time, God, I know that, that even though some of those horrific circumstances may not be present right now, every man in here is waging a war. That, that, that they're dealing with certain issues, different temptations, different sinful behaviors. Uh, but, but the power to overcome those things does not come from them. It comes from you. And I just ask that you would give each man the faith he needs to, to, to trust in you to engage in your word, to get to know you better each and every day. So that that power that, that we think we need, we can finally recognize you've got it. We are yours. We are your sons. You love us more than we can imagine. Your grace is more incredible than we've ever understood. And we are thankful to get to be obedient and experience the freedom that comes only in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.